HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Mighty Quinn's has 11 locations in the United States. There are locations in Taiwan. There's one in the Philippines. Japan is on the way. Dubai is on the way. It's been heralded as one of the best barbecue spots in New York City by Time Out, Forbes, Zagat, pretty much all of the publications have put it in their top 10 barbecue spots at one time or another. And Pete Wells awarded the East Village location two stars when it opened. Mighty Quinn's began as a stall at Smorgasburg in Williamsburg. The chef who started all is Hugh Mangum, and he's here with us today. Chef, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Good morning. I want to start by talking about Smorgasburg, the stall that really launched the brand and, and got your food forward-facing to all the customers that lined up for it. So tell us, how did the idea for Mighty Quinn's begin, and how did it manifest itself as a kiosk stall at Williamsburg, Smorgasburg? So I'll give you the, uh, I guess, the long version. Um in about 2003, I was uh, running a general store, doing the food program at a general store in this little sleepy town in Carversville, Pennsylvania. And I had purchased a smoker that weighed about maybe 200 pounds, uh, was smoking pork butts uh, for Friday lunches at this place. And I was doing pork because my wife's family was from North Carolina, and I kind of wanted to impress them. And after selling this for a couple of weeks, we started to get phone calls in the morning and we would pre-sell and sell out. 
and it was all I could max out on this little smoker. Um, a couple years later, I graduated to purchasing a 16-foot-long trailer smoker, and on the weekends, I would do you know catering gigs, whatever I could do when I wasn't working. It was basically when I wasn't working, I was working, but it was always kind of doing that, like those hours on the pit, overnights, overnights, overnights. Fast forward to 2010, uh, I had basically lost a house, hit the, the housing market at the worst possible time, bought a house before we sold the house, uh, bankrupt, broke, uh, had three kids. My wife, Laura, was, you know, uh, doing a lot of work and we were just trying to make everything happen and was on my, on my last leg and got a phone call from Laura's cousin, Adam, who was a, uh, does furniture and he was doing it at the Brooklyn Flea, and he said, you've got to come here and sell your pork. It's, you'll crush it on the weekends. And he always had ideas, and I thought, okay, he's normally crazy, but let me check this thing out. So I, I reached out to the, the Flea, and, and I reached out to uh, you know, uh, John and, and Eric, and I asked if I could get a tasting with them. Came in, came in with a Cambro hot box from you know, my hot food off a smoker in my driveway in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, and did a tasting. And they said, we love the stuff. Uh, the problem is we have a guy doing brisket at the flea. We have this new market coming up, though. If you're interested, it's going to be all food, and it's going to be called Smorgasburg in Williamsburg. Before they could even say it, I jumped over the table, and I said, I'm in. Um, so then the next hurdle was getting permits to be able to, to sell food legally. And I didn't realize how difficult that was going to be. And I found a friend who had a restaurant near me to allow me to use his address as a commissary, even though I wasn't cooking there. I was cooking in a gravel driveway at my house, and it took about two months, and I finally got those temporary permits, which now you can get them much easier, uh, to sell at Smorgasburg. And I showed up for the first one. Uh, it was going to be, I guess it was right around July 4th of that year, 2011, I believe it was. And the night before, I was having a panic attack, and my wife, Laura, said, just go. And if you don't sell your food, we'll have friends over and we'll call it a going out of business party and we'll go move in with my parents. It was literally like that dire. It was like 600 bucks in the bank and, um, showed up, uh, along with Alex Stanko, who is now our executive chef. And I'd worked with Alex on and off since 2004. He's the hardest working, most awesome individual I've ever met. Um, we showed up there and 90 minutes later we sold out of everything we had and, Unbeknownst to me, the Wall Street Journal was there doing photos for uh, a piece that they were writing on this new food market. And we ended up being the cover picture of that story. It was an online story, but nonetheless, it kind of legitimized like, holy shit, this is really happening, you know. And um, I, as well, Irene Wong, who's a producer, was there with Pichet Ong, who's a pastry chef who I had known um, from John George and uh, they were kind of scouting without me knowing they were scouting, tasting food at, out of like the whatever 70, 80 vendors that were there, I think. Uh, maybe it was a little less. Um, but they decided to feature three vendors on a show called Unique Eats on the Cooking Channel. And this, again, was my first day out. And, you know, obviously I already considered that a success. Uh, but we got the nod to be on Unique Eats. So that aired the summer or the, the fall after this first kind of run at Smorgasburg as things were progressing. And of the three vendors that were featured, we were the only ones that showed up for season two. 
So when everyone who had seen that show were showing up at Smorgasburg for those three vendors, we were the only ones. They looked so, for you. Yes. So it just kind of progressively snowballed. So just to summarize, the magic formula is to be almost broke, <laughs> to show up for a outdoor food festival where you have no name recognition and make sure that a TV show is scouting and that the Washington <laughs> Post is there on that day. And then you're fine. Yeah, that's, you know, absolutely no luck involved. So what, <laughs> so what is that conversation? like uh with your family when you come home after that first day when you sell out in 90 minutes do you feel are you elated is it are you exhausted are you do you feel like you've got something there or do you feel like it was maybe just first day and how how does it make you feel when you when you sell out after 90 minutes so in retrospect that wasn't a ton of food that i had that first day Mm -hmm. 12 racks of ribs five briskets i think maybe you know six pork butts Again, it felt great, though, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, it was it was already a, a notch of success because the alternative was coming home and having that to eat for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always kind of still to this day suffer from like what I what my wife and I call uh, an imposter complex. And, you know, I, I thought it was too good to be true. And I just, you know, hoped that maybe I could afford to buy more food and use that. He basically did use the money from that to buy more food to show up the next weekend. And uh, to see if it would happen again. I didn't necessarily think it would. I just hoped and kept on going. For how long did you keep smoking it in your driveway? How many weeks, how many years were you doing it sort of like ramshackle style where you were uh, doing it off the grid and driving it up to Schmorgasport? We were, we were ramshackle uh, up until the day we opened Mighty Quinn's in the East Village. So wow. through Hurricane Sandy, uh, it got to the point where I was showing up with, uh, my God, it was 30, four, about 40 briskets and then I would smoke ribs on site, which is why the smoker was there. I was smoking um, – I would do three overnights because I could only fit 15 to 16 briskets on the smoker um, because of, like, the, the mass they take up. Um, and I was do, do three overnights in my driveway on a lawn chair, setting the alarm, like, wasn't sleeping. And I'd show up at Smorg, uh, start the fire, load the ribs on, fire those up, and cut meat for three hours. We'd sell about 600 sandwiches, so – Converse to what people think that we were cutting slow. We were actually doing like a sandwich every 30 seconds. Um, and then, you know, it, it was over. And then literally towards the, like the last five minutes, I like had to pee so badly because I was there all day, like cutting meat that I was just, I was like one pound sandwiches at that point, you know, like just take all the meat, man, take all the meat. And then I'd run to the bathroom and, and you know, but that's, uh, that's, you know, how it kind of rolled. It was, uh, we were literally flying by the seat of our proverbial pants until we opened the East Village. So you mentioned imposter syndrome, but you cooked places before this. It wasn't like you were just a guy in his driveway. What did you do prior to the uh, Mighty Quinn's formation and the smoking brisket in the driveway? Uh, I, well, I, the first my first job actually was a musician. I, I toured as a drummer. Um, I was in a band called Maypole, which uh, we were fortunate enough to tour with the Wallflowers for their biggest record, Bringing Down the Horse. So I did two years of that and... Um, then I was in a band named Enemy, which uh, is, was Troy Van Leeuwen, who's the guitar uh, guitarist for Queens of the Stone Age. His band, um, we got the tour with The Perfect Circle, which, you know, that was all awesome stuff. And I think I still probably had a, you know, an imposter complex then. Um, but then I moved to New York in 1999, went to culinary school at then FCI, which is now ICC. Um, out of school, I worked at Nougatine under Greg Brannon, uh, who's John George's, like, right hand and... 
honestly one of the coolest people and I, I learned more with with him in you know on and off in a year than I, I, I probably have learned with anybody else uh, cooking wise it's just his his attention to detail how much he cares about the ingredients um, but then you know I, I worked under other chefs uh, chef named Matt Levin out of Philadelphia um, but I did kind of the journeyman thing I you know we were pregnant my wife Laura was pregnant with our first son Quinn who the business is named after and I needed health care. And then, as you know and I know, in 2001, health care wasn't something that was automatic in any cooking gig. So I, I took a gig doing food sales for a company then called Harry Wills, which I believed got purchased by Dairyland. Um, so I did that for a year, and I felt like Willie Loman. I, you know, walk into a kitchen, and I was like, I was wearing, cl- you know, like, a, you know, slacks or whatever it was. And seeing the guys in the kitchen, I was like, I'm one of you. I'm not, I'm not this guy, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, I kind of, I got burnt out on that and then went and cooked, did various gigs cooking, you know, towards the Philly area, Bucks County area, you know, did various gigs. And then that general store was kind of the, uh, the 2003 moment, which I finally got to kind of do my own thing. Um, and I, I kind of modeled it after almost a barefoot Contessa, uh, or an olives out here, you know, where I, I essentially, was doing, you know, gourmet to go, but I was getting to kind of create really cool stuff and cultivate cheese from Murray's. And, um, that was the, the starting point of knowing that I kind of had to work not for myself, but for myself. Do you still play music? Yes. I don't play music as much as I used to. Uh, my son Lucas and my son Henry are both musicians. Lucas plays guitar and drums. And whenever he plays guitar and needs someone to back him up, I'm, uh, I'm his wingman. How... How closely do you think playing music has fed into what you do with food? Talk to a lot of people that work in the food industry, specifically chefs, and you hear a lot of drummers and a lot of guitarists. Why do you think that that is? Is it, is it coincidental in your mind as a, someone who plays music and also has become a restaurateur? I think they're the two are almost inextricably linked. Um, I think you know creative people are creative people, and um, there are people that are business people who can you know settle in and do something, whether it's work numbers or computer stuff, or uh, you know settle into a, a business mode and, and kind of go full full strength with it. But I think that you know chefs, musicians, are people that always kind of their headspace is very creative, and they need kind of new challenges, and they need you know to always be looking at new things and they, I don't know. I just, uh, I think it, it's, we, we, we work from a, a, a different inspired place and I don't mean that that's means we're more inspired. It's just that I think that we see things differently and maybe, maybe more passionately in certain ways. And, um, I don't know. I think that the lifestyle is, is similar in that, uh, you, you can't do the same thing every day and cooking is different every day. There's a flip side to the creative, which is necessary in a business partnership, which is, Yes. Num- the numbers person, the analytical one. Uh, so you're at Smorgasbord. You've got long lines. The press is coming. People are tweeting and posting and saying you have to go. How do you hook up with uh, your business partner? And what did that relationship uh, get pitched to you as and in the original stages? So this is a this is actually pretty cool. It's my my two partners uh, are my stepbrother Misha and his brother in law Christos. Um, I'm very fortunate to have them as partners because I suck at business. Um, I, I don't have a nose for it. I, I don't care about the numbers. I just want to cook and you know do my thing. Um, 
So Misha's father, my stepfather, Stan, and my mother were in New York. They live in Los Angeles. And I had just finished doing smorg for the weekend. They were out, and I, I was visiting them with my wife and kids in their hotel room. And I, I literally nodded off on the on the carpet in the room, just laying, laying on the floor after kind of telling him about my weekend. And I think that, you know, he saw that I was working hard. Stan saw that I was working hard. And he mentioned to Misha that I was doing this food thing. And... uh it just started a conversation where Misha and I started speaking about what I was doing and the light bulb kind of went off and I, I hate to mention a, a brand, but, um, when I would leave Smorg, I would drive home with the trailer on the back of the, the truck and I never ate at Smorg. I was just too kind of keyed up and I, I would drive and stop and I stopped in Bridgewater, New Jersey at a Chipotle and I would, it was kind of like the routine cause it was easy to park. I could park in the big lot with the trailer and I was in the line, and I just saw the way the line was working. And I, I don't know, you know, I guess it's a light bulb moment, but obviously it wasn't flushed out, and I needed Misha and Christos to flush it out with me eventually. Um, but it was it was this thought of if I could take barbecue, or what would I do, and serve it in that way, this is like it hasn't been done before. Um, you know, every place I'd visited with my father in Texas, because that's where he was from, you know, it was either under heat lamps um, or it came from the back. It was never, it, there was never that kind of like interaction between the cutter and the customer. Um, and then, you know, I, I, Misha, going back to the partnership, you know, I, I basically kind of talked to him and, and he and I sussed out this idea based on that. And he had mentioned to Christos, who was in the catering business, he had an insanely successful catering hall that he's a partner of called the Venetian in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he said to Misha, I'm, I'm never doing a restaurant again. Like, I'll come see this guy at Smorg with you, but I'm not doing a restaurant. You know, that's, this is the story as Chris has told me. And um, they came out the next weekend and I was, you know, cutting, cutting brisket. And apparently Chris walked over to Misha and said, I don't know about you, but I'm backing this guy. And that was, that was the beginning of it. I mean, we, from that point on, we were, you know, looking at locations. Actually, we were looking at a location on Marcy here in Williamsburg was the first spot we were looking at and trying to negotiate it. And through, you know, months of like kind of looking at places, I had this one moment where I was like, so are we like, are we, are we doing this? Like I, I, cause no one had ever officially said to me like, we're doing this or we're partners. And I didn't know how that worked. Um, I didn't know if someone like put a piece of paper in front of me and said, we are officially partners or there was no certificate. And, and uh, they're like, yes, moron. We're like, we're, we're building a restaurant, you know, like this is the thing, you know? And um, so, you know, they put together the the business plan and, and all those ideas, so to speak. And I, you know, just kept on toiling away doing the smorg thing. And this spot opened up on second and sixth in the East village and East village was the only place I'd ever lived in the city. Um, I lived on East fifth street uh, when I first moved here and I just, I mean, the joke is that I literally said, jump on that shit. That was like the first thing out of my mouth was like, that's the spot. Like, mm-hmm. Because no one else was doing it in the city. Everyone was looking to Brooklyn and there's nothing wrong with that. But it just seemed like this makes sense. It just made sense. Um, we took over a spot that had been like, I think, five or six restaurants over 10 years. It was the Van Dag space. And all of them failed, and there had been, like, multiple drug charges. Like, people, like, you know, there was, like, monster problems. A classic New York doom space. Yes, it was a doom space. And, and we ended up bringing in uh, a priest, a rabbi, and, and, uh, and a feng shui uh, woman who uh, Christos knew. And we did every single thing possible you, to, like, reverse the juju. You kill the pig, and you offered it to the gods yes. via smoke, and then... Uh, yeah, many pigs. And, and so... 
this is a unique process to try to cultivate into QSR, into a quick service environment, into an order at the counter, because you mentioned Chipotle, which is uh, a small amount of protein. Let's just say it's like a quarter pound of protein, maybe, mixed in with rice, uh, tortilla, chips. There, there's a lot of other, there's lettuce, there's a lot of other elements going on there that helps you manage your food costs. Yeah, there's a lot of filler. You are selling hunks of meat on a bun with sometimes not even a bun sometimes you're just giving them a pound of meat the purchase price at a barbecue restaurant uh is multiple times higher than it is at what we're going to call quote unquote a fast food restaurant so you're kind of in an uphill battle right there i get it smorgasbord people are looking for uh those people are specifically eaters they've come to eat you've got a captive audience and they're very uh they're very into discovering the next thing right yeah did you have any pause about opening up a restaurant where ticket prices rival more of an upscale dine at the table experience but people are ordering at the counter did that give you guys any pause whatsoever it might have given pause to, to Christos and Misha. I honestly didn't even think about it. And okay. then in retrospect, it was like, I mean, I think a year in or six months in, and I we were looking at food costs, and I was like, oh, crap. Like, why can't we just serve this stuff on rice? Like, I didn't <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, I yeah. mean, to this day, I'm like, holy crap. Like, are, people don't realize the food costs, especially because of the loss. You know, I mean. Sure. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Let's talk a little bit. We'll, we'll jump back into the business part. But yeah. let's talk about, like, um, the act of taking a piece of brisket, cooking it for several hours over fire. What does that take? What are the what are the ingredients that you actually use besides you know time and and yeah, wood? Yeah, I mean you know the, so the, there's obviously the wood and there's the time and and I mean you know salt and pepper, but I you know just the basic number on that is if you look at a brisket that typically comes to us weighing you know twelve to eighteen pounds, we lose sixty percent of that brisket in the smoke. I mean, and when you say lose, you're talking about water weight that's being fat, lost and fat. Fat and water weight. There's fat that's, you know, we trim call fat, which obviously is inedible anyway. And, you know, we try to use that for other things if we can. Um, but then, you know, when it's trimmed to, you know, a half inch or a quarter inch girdle, you know, you still end up losing a lot of intermuscular fat. And there's the fat between the point and the flat. And uh, so that 16-pound brisket ends up coming down to about 7 pounds. So And so for those out there listening that are wondering sort of what food cost is and what we're talking about, it's that obviously when you purchase something and you bring it into your restaurant and then you fabricate it or manipulate it in some way, most of the time – you get to sell all of it that comes into the restaurant. You buy a box of potatoes, you cut them into french fries, you get to sell all of them. Your yield is 99%. But with meat, which is traditionally proteins are going to be the most expensive uh, item that you're bringing into the restaurant, you're losing a great deal. So uh, how do you make your brisket? Is there... Can you talk us through the process? What type of wood you do? How long you smoke it for? All the kind of... Uh, the nerding out part of the smoking process? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, the nerding out process is pr it's pretty simple uh, as far as, like, you know, the overview. We, we, we get a lot of brisket in. We get about 
a pallet to two pallets a day at this point. What's a pallet? Uh, right? we're, we're going through about 17,000 pounds of meat a week. That's okay. to give you kind of like a, an idea. And where are you getting that from? So we currently, we basically go direct at this point because we buy so much. We have our, one of our old meat purveyors who's like, you know, close in with the company does our, essentially does like our cartage, you know, and we, you know, we never re- give our sources out because we have a lot of people that are trying to, to do the same thing. Okay. Um, but we, we deal with all natural and, you know, it's all, you know, pasture raised. Um, and there's about two or three farms, uh, in the Midwest, which we deal with. Um, but you know, we get the meat in, uh, we deal with trimming it, then we season it, which our seasoning is very simple, salt, pepper, paprika, you know, just a mixture and we let it cure for 24 hours. So basically it goes into a mass walk-in. Um, everything is obviously rotated daily and we store is it. it a, sorry, is it a hang or is it a Lexan? Lexan. How, are they, so Lexans. you stack them in Lexans? Stack okay. them in Lexans, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we rub, we don't, you know, obviously rub, we sprinkle, let it sit in, uh, and then they go into a walk-in and they sit overnight. And then the next day they're loaded in the afternoon for typically anywhere from 18 to 22 hours they smoke. Do you rinse them and then put a rub on? No. They we, just go straight? No, we rub them and then we never rinse them again. Okay. So that the that rub stays on them and then they go right on the smoker. Mm-hmm. We never wrap. Uh, a lot of, you know, and there's nothing, you know, everyone does their own thing. We go direct on the smoker. We avoid, you know, we know where our hot spots are now. Some people wrap in tinfoil to try to keep moisture in for the first couple hours. Yeah, they, and like Or Aaron, they char and then they wrap in tinfoil or something like that. Yeah, well, Aaron Franklin, for example, I mean, if I if I know correctly, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing so Aaron could bust me if I'm wrong. But I, I believe what Aaron does is he, he smokes for... 70% of the time is smoked open and then he wraps in butcher paper mm-hmm. for the last 30%. Okay. Um, some, somewhere around that range. We, we don't do any of that. Um, we just go straight on the smoker because we have now a, a number of smokers that like are dedicated to the brisket. They're rarely opened until that 18 hour mark anyway. So our humidity level stays very, very linear. And we, you know, we run at about, you know, 40%, 35 to 40% humidity in our pits, which means we run liquid in the pit, which is generally the fat that's rendered off. Um, and we, you know, we drain that to keep to a certain level and, um, we run, you know, a certain combustion with our wood. We typically use Oak and then a little bit of, um, apple and cherry mixed in, but mainly Oak is the fuel. Do you use a gas assist smoker? No. So no you've got a pit master that starts the fire and then someone takes over a shift and tends the fire and yeah. they go, they go 24 hours. Yeah. And when we open like the East village, for example, you know, that was between Alex and I, that was, I was sleeping in the office. You know, I mean, I literally was on a lawn chair in the office. So I'd be on the board cutting and Alex and I would be on the board cutting, you know, prepping. Uh, I would go up to the office when the restaurant closed, when the guys were closing it down and I would take 30 minute naps. I would come down, you know, literally have like a half pint of founder's dirty bastard, load a couple logs of wood on, go back up take a 30 minute nap and I would repeat that. How did you use a wood smoker in New York city? I would think that the, the overcoming those legal (laughs) obstacles would have been insane. I would have assumed that they would have made you, they would have said, cool, you want to smoke? Use an electric smoke shack box smoker, which are for those listening is sort of essentially like a large microwave for all intents and purposes. But you're talking about cooking with wood in the middle of, the city. Yes. H- how did you? How did you allow them? How did they? How did you allow to do that? How were you allowed to do that? Well, so that to the point about being Brooklyn versus New York, that was one of the one of the reasons that New York was enticing. Um, being in Manhattan was because no one was doing it. Mm, so okay. it was kind of like let's do this and you know be the pirates, you know. Um, and 
the part of what you need for a smoker, which we learned in the process, is called a black iron flu. It's a separate flu. So you can't smoke, you know, for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't have a restaurant, you know, you have an exhaust and your fryers and your you know grill and everything's under that, that exhaust. The smokers need to have a separate exhaust because you've got creosote, you've got things building up in that, that grease can't. It could be a very bad problem, um, which we learned as we were doing this. And we had to vent this up six floors, six stories in the East Village, which, which was is expensive. expensive. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of answers the question. Anyone that was there in the very beginning when we weren't serving wings and French fries um, that were on the menu, but we couldn't serve them yet is because we were waiting to get that second flu basically working so we could run another exhaust. So we weren't running anything with an exhaust. Gotcha. Um, so that was basically it. We, we, we went through all the hurdles with the fire department. Uh, we vented up, it's like 12 feet above the sixth story. Um, you know, we still have one tenant who doesn't love us so much, but you know, we, for, for the most part, you know, I think that we, we tried to pay forward all of the smell we are going to be putting out there with being very um, good to the neighborhood. You know, the previous restaurants were bars that were open till two in the morning uh, and we were closing at midnight or 11 on weeknights and we were very much neighborhood oriented. We weren't serving full liquor. Um, You know, we don't blast music. And for the most part, I think that, you know, karmically that kind of helped pay it forward, but it definitely was cost prohibitive to, to smoke in the city. And still, you know, it's still something that we have to consider. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about expansion, growth, business structure, all the things that you don't really care about. (laughs) We'll be back right here on the line. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. We're back on the line with Hugh Mangum. We're talking Mighty Quinn. So, of course, we're talking smoked meats. And we were just discussing a little bit about the fire and all the aspects that go into the actual smoking. Uh, I do want to hear about how you've grown. And I know that you have sort of a headquarters now that has a restaurant that's adjacent to it or connected to it. How did you go from uh, Schmorg? to your location in the East Village, and then now where are you doing most of the smoking? Where is it taking place? So we still smoke in the East Village, mm-hmm. um, but we obviously every restaurant, we, you know, since then that we've opened in the city, we don't smoke in because of those, you know, those hard hurdles to jump over. Um, so now we smoke at a commissary that we've built in Passaic, New Jersey. It's actually really cool. It's in this old like warehouse that's all brick building. It's got these huge flues and it's, it's really kind of a, an awesome old like mill looking building. It's 13,000 square feet. And you have all of it. 
Um, no, no, no. We have we have a thirteen thousand square foot section of it. Okay. Um, that we built our commissary into, and we've got four smokers there that run twenty four seven, and we basically smoke and deliver to the restaurants. So it's it's all in real time. So this is something that I'm really interested in. Uh, I have a very small restaurant, and then we do pop-ups. We do kiosks. We do things similar to what what you do as well on a much smaller scale. But the most maddening part is the logistics of it, right? So you have to transport things. You have to keep track of the inventory. As you've grown, what are some things that the company has done to help be successful as you expand to your multiple locations. Like in a normal day, how many you must deliver hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds of brisket, right? Every yes. single day, right? Yes. So, h- how does that logistics even unfold? So, on, on a very rudimentary, simple level, to you too, because we, you know, we, essentially the company's met. Like you know, I, I said, I was eating, you know, Milan sandwiches at Smorgasburg years ago. Um, you know, it's just a bigger version of smork. It's still smoking in the driveway and putting it in a camber hot box and delivering it to the place you're going. It's just that now the hot boxes are multiplied by a hundred, and you know the driveway is turned into a thirteen thirteen thousand square foot commissary. You know, mm-hmm. um, so on a rudimentary level, it's the same thing. It's just that there's a lot more logistics and there's more people. Um, and again, you know, bringing up you know Alex and you know Chris, Misha, and we have you know people working for us, uh, Carly Eggert's another person, uh, who the, all these people, they make it kind of like their, their, their life's work and to, to figure out all of those problems. And I mean, or situations. And I think that daily it's a, it's a learning experience. It's like, okay, so we built the commissary and we figured it, we realized we need more walk-in space and because what we had and we thought was enough isn't enough. And so we just built a walk-in that's like the size of my house. And, you know, (laughs) it's just, so every day is a challenge and every day is, you know, working on your logistics. And as someone who's not a numbers guy, um, I look at it and I, I, sometimes I can't wrap my brain around it. And then someone like Amisha who can look at a computer and, and like the matrix figure out all these little things and, Chris, who's great with vendors, we can fig- get you know dial in the best way to receive product and send it out. So essentially, now the commissary works like it's a vendor, um, you know, to kind of put it in the simplest terms. So the restaurants purchase from the commissary mm-hmm. like they're ordering. So any restaurant out there who's ordering from Baldor or whoever they're ordering from, treat it the same way. We treat it the same way. You get so, an invoice and you pay your invoice. Yeah, and so the restaurants do their inventory and. We have a, a par level for every restaurant based on knowing what the average sales are. Mm-hmm. And every night they do their inventory. It gets sent to the commissary and an, an order is built based on that and we send it out. So across all your locations, about how many people are working at For Mighty Quinn these days? If you go globally, uh, probably, I, I mean, I'm going to say it's somewhere between 200 and 250. So what started with three, seven years ago is... It's crazy. It's, Treme- crazy, it's tremendous, tremendously fast growth. Yeah, it's it, it's it's fast and it's scary and it's you know it's humbling and it's just insane. Like I, I, I honestly I can't wrap my brain around that. Did when you were standing in line at Chipotle, did a part of you say, "This is what Mighty Quinn is destined for. It's destined to have." hundreds if not our thousands of locations across the united states is oh no that, is that what you were is no. that what you're looking to achieve now um 
I, I take it day by day. I mean, like at this point, I just want to make really good food in however many locations we have and, and keep the consistency spot on mm-hmm. and feel good about the food we cook and, you know, hope that most people get that and know that like it's coming from a real place. Um, I think, you know, you don't, you don't think like it's not world dominance and it's still the imposter complex. And I still think it's going to end tomorrow, you know? And, and I, 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 I circle back to like the Pete Wells thing. I mean, there was this interview I heard years, a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was Steve, Steve Carell was talking about like getting the call from his agent that he got the first, you know, big movie and um, the excitement of like, holy crap, I got this, I got it, you know? And he's like jumping up and down, he hangs up the phone. It's like, oh shit, now I actually have to do this, you know? <laughs> and and the Wells, you know, review, which was insane. And I mean, I the moment that happened, I was on the board, my phone just starts buzzing and pinging and I'm like, what's going on? And I thought maybe like my wife was calling me, there was a problem with my kids. It was Tuesday night because they typically, he, you know, releases it Tuesday night. And I pick my phone up and I just see congratulations. I see all this stuff and I, I run up to the office and I read the review and, you know, it was like that moment. It was that this is the dream come true. And then it was, oh, now, like, people are going to pay attention, you know? Yeah, the, the validation comes now with high expectations yes. that now you're not exceeding people's expectations, but you have to meet them. You have to meet them, yes. which is, uh, it can be a very dangerous position for a restaurant to be in where somebody says, yeah. I heard that it was great. I went, it wasn't that great. And, it, and it wasn't as good as everybody says it was. Well, and, and, and as you and I know, I mean, the, the first couple months, you know, I could tell you the moment a, a Yelp review hit, you know, I, I, I paid attention because sure. you know, it's what you do. And I and check it, I check it 10, 20 times a day, honestly. See, I, I don't I, anymore. I'm done. You're, you're I, I'm new. I'm, no. <laughs> I'm less than a year in. You, you get to, well, no, no, but you I'm, get I'm, to focus on some other things and now. It still, still freaks me out terribly. No, and, and it still freaks me out. It's just that I know that I, after we hit like about a hundred of them, I, at that point it was like, it, it's like focusing on things that you shouldn't be focused on because mm-hmm. I, I, at that point I was like, okay, we're, we're an okay, an okay place, whatever happens now. And I just have to make sure the food is good. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I know that like, you know, we've got people like Chris and Misha who do pay attention to those things more. So if there are things and as you know, as well, if, you know, if you see one negative Yelp, it, it doesn't necessarily ruin your day because you know that someone might have come in in a bad mood. But if you see three or four within a 24-hour period mentioning the same thing, you know, okay, I've got to really put eyes on this. It can totally be informative and exhausting at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It, you have to take each with a grain of salt. But if three people say, hey, I had the I had the wings and this was – Yes. They were too salty. You, All right. You look at maybe it. the wings are a little too salty. Uh, I want to talk you, – you, you've mentioned Chris and, and Misha so many times – what is the organizational structure like these days as you've grown to uh, its 11 locations in the United States? No, the United States is we're opening Midtown is opening in the next two weeks, three okay. weeks. Uh, we've got Midtown, West Village, East Village, Battery Park City, Upper East Side. Uh, we're opening on Broadway and 39th. Uh, we've got Westchester, Clifton, New Jersey. Um, we're also opening the Garden State Plaza, New Jersey in this coming year. Um, we'll be opening Staten Island next year, but then we've got two in Taiwan and one in Manila. Okay. And then, but also Japan yeah, happening. J- Tokyo is going to be happening. I don't have a, a, an exact timeline on that. Dubai. Dubai is opening in October. Okay. So 
what are all of your roles like? Do you have do you have titles? Do you have a day to day type of structure that all of you sort of submit to, or you know, is one of you the CEO? I mean, um, you're the you're the face. We yeah. know that, but like, what is, what happens week to week within the company as you grow so quickly? So, I mean, again, give it to you as kind of rudimentary as possible. You know, the three of us are co founders as, as our titles, and you know, there's no like one CEO and. Uh, you know, Misha's responsibility is typically, you know, obviously money, numbers, business. Chris is kind of in, interlinked into the business and also building of new restaurants uh, and day to day with customer service and dealing with all of our managers. And I deal with food, uh, recipe development, and like you said, press and 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 the like. Um, I think you know, kind of being honest and being personal about it that's been my personal kind of hardest transition. Um, I'm most comfortable cooking and you know, you're a year in and, and you know, you it's like, that's, that's the most exciting time. It's like, you know, when you're flying by the seat of your pants, you're not sleeping, but every, every move you make has a purpose. Um, and when we were starting in the East village and it was just one restaurant and it was smorgasburg, it was fight or flight. I was, on my last dollar and I was cooking and it's, it's cooking ultimately is what makes me feel like me. And it, you know, it's what makes me happiest when it comes to work. Um, so I think that I've had a learning curve and I've faltered here and there, uh, on the business side, as far as like, you know, not just my responsibilities necessarily, but like kind of finding my way. Um, and, and Chris and Misha have been very supportive in trying to help me with that because they, I think they realize that sometimes I feel like a fish out of water when it comes to the non-cooking things. And, and that's been my, you know, daily challenge and learning. Are the locations outside the United States, are they franchises or – so you – is it a license deal? It, How does that work? Essentially, they're franchises. But what we do is, uh, you know, we've been vetted and we vet our our partners in those. So we have, we have a stake. Um, they either come here or we go there and train them. Um, they use the same <laughs> ingredients, same meat. I mean, for example, you know, in Taiwan, Taiwan is not very um, beef-focused. So – all of our stuff, we make sure that it's coming from from us. Essentially, uh, the raw meats are you know flash frozen, and they go in a shipping container frozen, uh, and they go there, so we can control the quality. So it's the exact same meat. It's the exact same. Wow. Meat. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's it's still going to be fairly close, yes. even though it's traveling yeah. a much far distance. And the pork and the chicken are not necessarily mm-hmm. because obviously that's more abundant there and uh, easier to get a hold of. But um, you know, produce. That's part of the, the the trick is like learning, you know, so what's available in Taiwan seasonally is not the same that's available to us. And obviously it's more tropical and uh, the, you know, like in Manila, the the sweet potatoes are crazy starchy and they're not like, you know, yam-like. So we've had to kind of alter recipes on, on the fly when we're there and doing training to, to make sure that they taste identical. Um obviously Dubai, they don't eat pork. So we have our menu is being swapped out certain items that are pork. We're doing lamb, um, which, you know, we're doing lamb shoulder, we're doing lamb shank, we're doing lamb ribs. Um, so I think, you know, you have to kind of learn, you want to stay in your lane and you want to stay true to the, the vision of the brand, but you also need to consider what, what local resources you have. So have you been spending time in some of those locations? Yes. So you f- have flown out to 
the Philippines or to Dubai and you're, do you do recipe testing on, t- on site and do training on site? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when we opened, uh, Taipei, the first location that was, uh, a little over a year ago, mm-hmm. um, I was there for three weeks. Uh, then we opened Manila and the second Taipei location within a few weeks of each other. So I was in December. I spent about three weeks uh, in Asia, came back, and then went back in January um, for about two weeks. Um, and I'm going to Dubai, it looks like October. And so do you have quarterly responsibilities as uh, as sort of the on-site chef overseer of the entire brand to go out there to do quality control? Do you send Alex to do quality control? Or at that point, is the is it sort of in their hands to continue that process? Um, I think it's uh, we're learning as we go. And I think that that's uh, you know, a plan as far as like quarterly or every four months or five months, whatever it's going to be. Uh, we're kind of seeing how it goes as we open them. But at this point, we've opened them in 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 enough time where it allowed me to, I was out in April, then I was out again in December. So there was only five or six months that went, but that went by. Um, so at this point there hasn't been a need to set up the quarterly thing because I'm out there anyway. Um, and when I was in Manila, it's, you know, you're, you're so close to Taipei at that point. Manila is the hardest flight. I mean, going to Manila, if anyone hasn't been to Manila, you fly, uh, I believe it's 22 hours or 18 hours to Hong Kong, and then you have a two-hour layover and then two hours to Manila. So it's a, it's a long day. Coming back is, is the hard part. And that, you go in there, it's not that bad. So on the subject of closer travel, when you go back to Texas or you spend some time in – your wife's from North Carolina? Uh, my wife's family's from North Carolina. My dad was from Texas. I was actually born in L.A. Okay. So for you, when you go to these sort of barbecue meccas around the United States uh, – are you, are you doing research? Are you thinking about what they're doing, or do you not? Does I don't it, eat barbecue. Does it inform? You don't eat barbecue. I, I don't eat barbecue. <laughs> no, I mean, I you know, I, I will say that before we opened the East Village, I definitely ate my fair share of, of barbecue and and you know did did that stuff. But I mean, no, the the all of the, all of the food and all of our recipes, you know, were either developed. They were things that I had borrowed from my father's recipes, as far as like some methodologies. Um, so he was a grill guy. He, I mean, he a was smoker. a weekend, he was a weekend warrior. We, uh-huh. had, we had a pit in the backyard cool. and, and he and I would do road trips and I had recipes that he had written. Um, and you know, I took th- those recipes, uh, one of my mother-in-law's recipes, which is our sweet potato casserole and, you know, kind of just tweaked all of them. Um, but you know, mainly I don't think that as a, as a brand, as a restaurant, we ever cooked food based on someone else's food. Um, I think that it was just like I was trying to recreate the stuff I tasted with my dad. And I was trying to make food that I liked, um, which is one of the things I think that makes it New York barbecue. I mean, you know, there's other guys doing it too at this point, you know, and, um, you know, Billy's a friend of mine at hometown. And I think that like, you know, what he, myself and a few of us all possess is this this idea that there isn't necessarily like we're not beholden to a region anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the region is the U S and New York has become one of the, the, you know, not just the culinary epicenter, but it's become, you know, one of the barbecue epicenters of the U S because we're not beholden to any one style or region. And, um, you know, I, I don't taste other barbecue just because I just don't have a taste for it anymore. You know, like I can taste it in my mouth now and I haven't eaten it today, you know, and I, I just don't need, I just don't need it. I don't need any more barbecue, you know? So obviously family has played a very yes. important role yeah. in the entire business named after your son. Obviously your wife has played an integral role in uh, helping being supportive. Uh, your 
very much intertwined with your family yes. in the business sense. Uh, how has that, can you speak a little bit about how that's been um, both productive and great and also perhaps been difficult um, to be so closely intertwined with your family and your business? Um, you know, honestly, there hasn't been a ton of difficulty. The The most difficult time was the, obviously the, the in, in a sense, work-wise, the most rewarding time, which was that first year um, because I was essentially not home except for, you know, half a day on Sunday every week. Um, but my wife and I met in culinary school, Laura and I met in culinary school. So she cooked, uh, she doesn't do it professionally anymore, but she gets it. So she knew that this was like, this was the moment, you know, it's like that, that whatever the song from eight mile, you know, this is the shot. Don't mess it up. You know, I, I had, I had my shot and she knew it and she was like, I got the kids just do this. And my kids, you know, although my, my, my kids will say like, Oh, when are you going to be home? Or they're awesome. And they've been totally supportive and, and, I think that they have enjoyed seeing it as well. So there hasn't been a lot of stress with that more than just like wanting to be with them. I feel guilty that I'm not around as much as I wish I could be. Um, you know, I've got, my kids are a little older now uh, than, I mean, for example, you know, Chris and Misha's kids are, they, they both, uh, Misha has two and Chris has three kids and uh, they're a little bit younger. And, you know, because I'm a little older at this point and I'm 45 now and I, this is my second career. We had Quinn when I was 30 and you know, he's going to be 15 in a couple months and you know, Lucas is 12 and Henry's 10. And I, I feel like with Quinn, I had this realization a couple months ago with my wife. I'm like, Holy shit, he's going to college in three years. Like I, I'm literally like, he's going to be gone. Like this is, this is crazy. You know, he's six feet tall and, you know, you don't realize that, you know, this one quotation someone said to me is that the, uh, the years, are short and the days are long. And that's totally true. It's like when you have a kid, it's, you don't realize how fast it goes. And it, it, it makes me want to cry just thinking that he's, he's going to be gone and that, you know, Lucas is not far behind him. And I've missed a lot of that. Um, but I also realized that I have been more present than I think most people, you know, working in, in this business are. Um, so, I mean, families, it's not just like important. It's kind of like the, you know, it's the only thing that really matters at the end of the day, you know. You only have three years to have Quinn be a dishwasher before he, oh, goes he's, he and he's on the books now. Before he goes off to college, he's on the books now, which uh, is awesome. So that so you he does work within the company. Well, he so a couple of years ago he said, "Hey, Dad, can I come? Can I come? You know, work?" And I brought him in, and I realized in, that I was having to pay him out of my pocket because you know we have everybody, you know, everyone that works at Mighty Quinn's is on the books. We don't do anything, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like old school. And uh, so I couldn't put him on the books. He's under 14 years old. And I'm like, <laughs> crap. So it's costing me, you know, 50 bucks a day to yeah. have my son come hang with me, you know. And uh, so this last year, he, when he hit 14, he was able to he's able to legally work. So he's he, he's worked a few days with that. But the nice thing is he actually gets a paycheck and it, it's Very, like it's still coming out of, uh, of my pocket, but it's in a different way. You know? Very cool. So Quinn gets to work at Quinn's. Yes. Uh, we have a shirt that says Mighty Me for him. You know? Oh, nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're sort of the golden standard for smorgasbord. You came and you conquered. You've expanded. And I imagine that uh, that makes them very happy. But also a lot of the vendors must look to you as sort of what they can potentially achieve. I'm curious, what type of advice would you give to someone who has a concept and thinks that, it's damn good and that hopefully one day they'll have an East Village location and maybe a Dubai location. Well, what do you say to someone who has big dreams like that? 
Well, first of all, again, we we were extremely and still are extremely lucky. Um, I think we were, you know, we, we, me, all of us were in the right place at the right time for the right thing. Um, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. You know, unbeknownst to me, I'd done 10,000 hours of smoking meat prior to Smorgasburg. And I didn't necessarily realize that. So when the opportunity came up, I was just lucky to have seized it and, and been lucky and fortunate to be the guy who did. Um, I think we all get a shot. It's just a matter of being ready when that shot happens and not being, I mean, being fearful. Look, failure creates a lot of, can create a lot of success. And I think that, you know, my, my failure is what pushed me over the cliff along with my wife, you know, kind of pushing me over that cliff as well. But I think the thing with Smorg is that, you know, what's happened is it's, it's, I think you have to get in it for the right reasons. I think a lot of people come into it now and think like, I want to be the next big thing. And I'm going to come up with this idea and go do this. And maybe that works for some people. Me personally, I can't see how that works. Um, I think that it needs to be authentic and I think it needs to be real. And whether it's selling, you know, peanut butter or, you know, beef jerky or jam or brisket or a vegetarian bomb me or whatever it is, you know, if it's something that, is coming from like your gut and it's honed and you mean it and it's authentic and you care and it tastes freaking delicious. It'll work. But if it's just an idea and you're selling an idea, ideas only last so long, you know, before someone comes in and does it better. Um, so I think that, you know, we were just really lucky and I think that there's a few other, I mean, you know, mile end, I think dough, I think, you know, Blue Bottle, all of us were at Smorgasburg. We just happened to be the guys that, like, started from zero, essentially, you know? And um, I think it was just a lot of years of getting my ass kicked that made me a good salesperson. Um, I didn't sit down. You know, there was a lot of other vendors that would sit in chairs and their heads would be down when someone would walk up. We were playing music, and we were, like, you know... I was the guy who had charcoal all over me and was slicing the meat and was you know, serving it to the people and giving them taste of the stuff. So it was authentic in every way. And I think that that, that is what clicked. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to hear your story. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you back on again in a couple of years when you open up your... 20th out of the country location. <laughs> I might uh, be dead by then. <laughs> uh, best of luck to you with all the new locations. Uh, thanks for joining us. He has too many locations to list, so just go online, find the Mighty Quinns that's closest to you. There's many of them in the city and also in Jersey. And as can well. I say one more thing as of well? Course, there's yeah. a, I, I, I'm, I ride a bike as my, like my passion, and there's a charity out there called chef cycle for no kid hungry oh awesome and uh just recently did that uh ride a couple months ago and the new ride for next year is going to be announced soon and if anyone has the time please go to no kid hungry and take a look it's an awesome cause and any donation would be greatly appreciated you could plug no kid hungry on the show as much as you want because i'm <laughs> deeply affiliated with them as awesome. well it's a great organization so definitely check out chef cycle and also uh go get some barbecue Mighty Quinns all around the city. We'll see you next week for another chef story here on Heritage Radio. This is The Line. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.